This is part two of my conversation with Hunter Marsden. In this episode, he discusses US-China strategic competition and how it impacts both Singapore and Vietnam. Let's move a little bit further east um, to Singapore, another country that you focused on in your PhD. Now, I very shamefully don't know very much about Singapore. I know that it's a former British colony and it maintains strong security ties with the West via the five power defense arrangements. Um, in terms of US-China strategic rivalry, how does that play out in Singapore's politics or civil society? Um, excellent question. Singapore is one of the most interesting case studies to look at in terms of US-China competition for influence, um, particularly because it's it's such a close security partner of the United States, um, but also a majority Chinese ethnic state. Uh, and Singapore has walked a very delicate line with regard to its um, uh, ethnic Chinese identity. It's insisted to Beijing that it's not a Chinese state and it will not simply act in China's interest because of that uh, ethnic and, and um, historical connection there, the cultural ties. Um, Singapore has, as a very small state, sought to preserve its autonomy by balancing against um, and balancing with uh, external stakeholders in a way uh, that preserves some ambiguity to its relations with both China and the United States, even as it seeks to cooperate with both powers and deepen ties um, in order to keep an equilibrium there. Do you think that um, leeway for countries like Singapore to use ambiguity and that delicate balance is narrowing in terms of there's less scope for them to remain ambiguous about how they feel in relation to the US and China? I do get the sense. Um, in some ways, great power competition brings some benefits for small states looking to sort of leverage uh, engagement from the great powers, right? The United States has always been perceived as somewhat distracted. Uh, and now that the US sort of needs these countries in its efforts to retain influence, I think Southeast Asian countries can derive uh, or at least signal to the United States that they want certain public goods, vaccines, uh, investment, um, and the United States will have to do more on that front. But I also get the sense that there's an acute vulnerability um, and sense of insecurity from states like uh, Singapore. Singapore's prime minister wrote um, an excellent piece in Foreign Affairs last year uh, about this dilemma, warning the great powers uh, to sort of tone down their um, zero-sum competition and uh, really voicing Singapore's concerns about the future of regional order and the potential for war. Um, Singapore is all too familiar with this history. It was invaded by Japan during World War II um, and was born out of a sort of rocky uh, coalition with um, the Federation of Malaya, from which it secured independence in 1965. Um, and so it, it really sees the great power rivalry as a potential disruptor to its own economic security and um, existence in a, in a major way. Turning now to Vietnam, in recent years, Vietnam's become more outspoken on the Chinese Communist Party's use of coercion in the region. Vietnam is one of the claimants in the South China Sea territorial dispute, but it's also got a vexed history with the United States in terms of their experience in the Vietnam War. Hunter, how does Vietnam fit into the strategic dynamics of the Southeast Asian region? 
Yeah, Vietnam is really um, seen as a frontline state in this. Uh, I, I don't want to use the word battle, but in efforts to resist China's expansion in the South China Sea, uh, Vietnam has been one of, the, one of the most vocal critics of China's behavior and actions in the South China Sea or the East Sea, as the Vietnamese call it. And it's very skillfully, I think, um, reached out to Washington and enhanced its partnerships with with both Washington and uh, Japan as well to um, signal to Beijing that it's capable of pushing back. Uh, it's spent a lot of money investing in its naval capabilities and its uh, Coast Guard um, uh, assets. So it's, it's now able to sort of uh, push back against Chinese incursions in its waters. Um, but at the same time, Chinese pressure has been consistent and, and unrelenting. Uh, China's also successfully persuaded Vietnam to cancel international oil and gas exploration deals in its own waters with Russian firms, uh, a French firm last year. And uh, even ExxonMobil has uh, sort of shied away from um, Vietnamese waters and uh, potential opportunities because of this uh, threat or instability that China poses. Oh, wow. I wasn't aware of that. So just because of the economic power that China has over Vietnam, it was able to pressure Vietnam to cancel those deals? Well, not just economic power, uh, which Beijing does wield um, in, in punitive fashion, uh, but at the same time, Chinese uh, maritime militia and, and uh, Coast Guard patrols have really uh, harassed any Vietnamese efforts to conduct oil and gas exploration with its, with its drilling rigs. Um, so private Vietnamese companies just- are basically too scared to do what they were doing before? Yeah, I think so. There's um, an interesting incident back in uh, 2017, which I write about in my chapter, um, in which uh, a Chinese general was visiting Hanoi um, and threatened very explicitly, uh, at least this is what's reported um, among those in the know, threatened very specifically that China would use force against Vietnam if it didn't cancel a deal with a Spanish firm, Repsol, to uh, explore oil and gas in its waters. Hunt, I also wanted to ask about if there is a way that Australia and the United States view Southeast Asia, if it is different in any way. So, for example, I know, you know, living in Washington, D.C., it's on the east coast of the United States, is a long way away from Southeast Asia, um, whereas Australia is a lot more geographically closer, but... Um, is there a difference between how the two countries approach their diplomacy or relations with Southeast Asia that you've been able to observe? Well, I can't say as much about the differences in diplomacy because I simply have less experience um, engaging with the Aussies in Southeast Asia. Uh, but from my own limited perspective, um, based on my time in Canberra, I'd say that Southeast Asia is um, much more of a focusing region to Australia's view of the world and foreign policy writ large than it is in Washington. Um, and I think you hit the nail on the head when you mentioned the geography, the distance from, from Washington and Washington's preoccupation with China really means that uh, Washington policymakers and um, analysts tend to overlook Southeast Asia despite uh, recent proclamations by a couple administrations that the Indo-Pacific is the priority region for U.S. policy. Um, I still think that there's too much emphasis on Southeast Asia as 
or I should say policymakers in Washington are, are too quick to frame Southeast Asia policy in terms of or in terms subservient to their China policy, rather than seeing Southeast Asia as a region of importance in its own right. I want to turn now just to look at your career and the amazing experiences you've had working and living in the United States and also in Southeast Asia. Um, for other people who are looking to pursue a career, either um, researching or developing expertise on Southeast Asia, have you got any advice for them in terms of what they can expect or how to narrow down their areas of interest within Southeast Asia? Well, um, I'd, at risk of being sort of contrarian, uh, I was encouraged early on to narrow down and limit my focus to be very clear about having a sort of deep expertise in one topic. Um, with Southeast Asia, I think that's just impossible. Um, but at the same time, I, I actually encourage mentees of mine to keep a wide focus um, and you know, perhaps juggle multiple areas of expertise. You don't want to just be a Vietnam expert or uh, a Myanmar expert. I think it helps to sort of have multiple lenses uh, or entry points into the region. Um, obviously, China looms large, so Chinese language expertise will be in high demand for a long time. Still, I'm a little disappointed that there's not more interest in Southeast Asian languages um, or appreciation for those skills, which I think are essential to understanding these countries on a deeper level. Um, but yeah, I would encourage younger folks to sort of keep an open mind to different uh, paths into Southeast Asia studies. Um, you know, for instance, we touched on the South China Sea. Um, you could have a decade working in, uh, you know, energy companies, um, and then, and then become interested in, uh, South China Sea disputes, or you could have a law degree and see this from a completely different angle, um, than I do currently, uh, this sort of nitty gritty of the legal disputes behind the South China Sea completely elude me. Um, and I think the debate would be enriched by having someone with more substantive um, disciplinary knowledge in law or energy that, that come at this from uh, other fields than uh, simply the sort of geopolitics or international relations lens. Hmm. Hunter, finally, um, I'd love to ask my guests about a funny or weird story, something that's happened to them in the course of their career that's unusual that you might tell at a dinner party. Do you have a story like that you would like to share? Probably too many embarrassing stories traveling, living, learning to live in Southeast Asia. Um, um, but I, I suppose one that comes to mind is, is a bit of a professional um, embarrassment. The first time I traveled to Naypyidaw when I was an intern in the American embassy, and this was before they open flights between Yangon and Naypyidaw, uh, which also happened while I was there in 2012. But we used to drive up um, from Yangon um, to Naypyidaw for meetings with uh, Myanmar government officials. And the first trip I went on, uh, I believe it was just me and the American ambassador, Derek Mitchell at the time. Uh, we arrived in Naypyidaw. Our first meeting was scheduled to, um, we were going to meet with the vice president of Myanmar uh, in their equivalent of the White House. And we parked at our hotel and he said, you know, shall we leave in 15 minutes? I said, sure. Checked into my hotel room, was outside 10 minutes later just to make sure that I didn't, you know, miss this convoy, uh, which 
I absolutely did. And um, in scrambling to sort of figure out where the ambassador had gone, asking different drivers, um, realized that somehow, for some reason, he had left without me. Uh, not that I was vital to this mission in any way. But the feeling purely... the feeling within your stomach of, oh, my exactly. God, what am I going to really, do? I really messed up my first um, sort of big diplomatic trip with the ambassador here, you know, vice presidential meeting. Um, anyways, I, I found an, another driver to rush me to, um, the, uh, uh, Capitol building and, uh, made it in time, but, uh, had to wait outside the meeting room. Um, you know, not, not, a meaningful <clears throat> loss, uh, or absence there. But, uh, at the time I, I was very embarrassed, um, and lesson learned, I suppose. I, I don't know how I would better prepare for that by, uh, not simply not checking into the room. Look, I don't think you did anything wrong. I remember I went on a trip to South Korea and we were visiting one of the government agencies and I needed to bring my passport and I totally forgot to bring my passport and that feeling of, well, I'm going to miss out on this meeting. But um, as it turned out, I was able to talk my way in, which was very a very good result for me. So they were very kind to let me in. Hunter, thank you so much for sharing all of your expertise. Honestly, I don't know that I've met anyone else who's got so much knowledge on each individual Southeast Asian nation and is able to express it in ways as clearly um, as you have done. So thank you so much for that and uh, all the best with your PhD. Soon you'll be Dr. Marston. Thank you, Haley. It's been a pleasure.